1: Everything has changed. You're listening to the Land of Legacy podcast with your host Adam Keith and Matt Die. We're deep in the heart of deer season. And we're coming up beginning in November.
0: The this, special time This of year. is
1: releasing on Halloween morning, October 31st. Yep. Now, deer hunters everywhere are, for some reason, Halloween's like the day. It's like, oh, Halloween is here from now on. It is game on, or at least until the end of November
0: or until some people say gun season
1: or yeah, for us, it was always like, all right, gun season screws everything up. The deer get real pressured, real nocturnal. And so we have two weeks Halloween to time. the opening day of gun season. After that, it's all sorts of chaos. And, and I think a lot of times we say this a lot, but, and I know I thought it a lot from the beginning when I really started kind of getting a sense and, and following, um, kind of what's going on in the deer woods what what i'm seeing and and really trying to pay attention and and almost play offense rather than defensive okay i know acorns are getting ready to get eaten up so i need to start adjusting what's going to be the next preferred food source what are the deer really going to be moving around and traveling towards and all that going on it's like just when i get it figured out it's over
0: well and that that's basically the the whole purpose of this podcast and it, it it's titled like i've said everything changes and and you have to be able to anticipate what's next what's going to change um look at things from a year to year basis and and know if something's lacking from one year to another that's going to affect the way deer move and thus affecting the way you hunt and the success if you're not you know preparing yourself for those in the right manner so um we've actually run into a couple instances ourselves lately that um, said, you know, we can, we can anticipate things a little bit better um, based on the current conditions of a couple of different places that are hunting. So we want to go through that and, and share this perspective of, you know, even though you've been successful in one area year after year, those years still will change. Um, and, and if you're not being successful there this year or have seen those, those failed years in the past, Here's how you can kind of work around those and think ahead of time um, where you need to be at. So,
1: for example, I mean, we're getting ready to jump right into this podcast, but um, you think of my family farm and how last year all the hit list bucks that were between there and the Prairie Hollow property spent the time on my family farm. 300 acres, but that's where we got all the pictures. This year, complete opposite. And it's 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 all related around food and it's kind of, this week a lot we've talked about, man, things are a whole lot different this year at the, at the family farm and Prairie Hollow property than they have been in past years. And then when we go to the Lebanon farm, it's like, man, everything is so different from this week versus last week. And it's just constant changing. So if you found yourself, even if you're a public ground hunter and you're going, man, why can't i get this i I, just about the time i get figured out something happens and they they're doing a totally different
0: thing this is the podcast for you for you so and and you can see this not only in hunting observations but trail cameras too mm -hmm. when deer are showing up you got to take note of these things um to be able to again anticipate what's your next move because deer will change for sure patterns will change
1: you think about even on scrapes like we just pulled some cameras a couple of days ago and it was the hottest camera on the family farm was dead. We had one video of a doe walking by outside of that. It was nothing but false images of wind blowing the grass around. So, mm-hmm. um, and then there, another ca- the camera, um, uh, that we call the front front field it has tons of traffic and then it's completely gone. It was hundreds, if not thousands of pictures, um, two weeks ago to 32 images and it was all possums, armadillos and squirrels. So, it's, it's constant change, and it's constant adapting to that change. So, Anyway, that's uh, that's this week's podcast topic. Before we do that, don't forget about last week's podcast, the Hooks Calls Messenger promo code, LL15. You can get 15% off a Hooks Messenger grunt call. Um, it's the one we used on the podcast last week, and it's the one we use this fall calling, and it's a very unique grunt call. doesn't look like anything else on the market, so I encourage you to check it out. Are and you ready?
0: What one reminder too? The Sportsman's Nation, it is it is kicking off next week, so beware, be watching, look for the changes, and um, be sure to share it with your with your hunting buddies. It's going to be an awesome network of a bunch of different podcasts coming together, joining the forces, and <clears throat> hope everyone um, is excited as we are for it. It's going to be fun.
1: All right, everything has changed. Let's just start out with a story. A and and, and we'll uh, start out with the Lebanon farm, because that's kind of what triggered this whole podcast starting out. And it is, as you've heard in the past, it's a working cattle farm, it's got crops on it, so it's a majority of open ground. They've got standing soybeans, alfalfa, wheat, and corn during the summer, but a lot of times um, a majority of it gets cut before season opens up and it gets used for silage. So... On that farm, we spend the entire time chasing the food source. We go around. Okay, deer are really hitting the alfalfa. And right about the time the alfalfa gets really good, really tall, and deer are palatable. pouring into it, here comes the cutter, and they cut it for hay, which is what the p- farmer planted it for. So it's nothing against them. It's just the name of the game. Okay, the alfalfa's been cut. Now it's really short, and deer are on something else. And it's a constant change. Okay, well, it looks like they're starting to really pound into the soybeans. Well, we were just informed two days ago that the combine combine is supposed to show up this week to combine the standing soybeans. And we spend the
0: whole summer and fall. Not not to mention burrocks. Last year, yeah. we chased burrocks. There was plenty of them all across mm-hmm. this farm in in the Big Creek system, and um, that was a hot source. And now this year they hit them a little bit, but it wasn't that same intensity because there just wasn't as many of them.
1: Yeah, and 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 I don't, I mean, there was a little bit of action on them this year, but not much to even really not, consider hunting on. No, no. Um, and so that's some years it's acorns. Last year, like Matt said, they really weren't hitting the alfalfa till very late in the year, um, and it was it was all about acorns. So, um, and I'm saying acorns as much as I can for your brother. <laughs> um. so anyway that is kind of what's going on we're constantly changing every single week and, and what, so it brings up the question of there's so much change going on what is not changing
0: and one of the other things that changes all the time or I guess gives the opportunity for a lot of change is that the way the farm lays out there's a lot of open field um, some of that being pasture some of that being crops but the creek systems and the drainage ditches that connect all of them there's a lot of different options for deer to travel so when when you have a food source that changes then their travel pattern you know they're not walking across you know the big open field and stuff typically they're taking different routes and different drainages to get to these different food sources that are all always changing so we are basically backtracking those deer and saying okay where can we find the consistency where can we where can we capitalize on on their movements because we know that everything else is, is changing. Where do where, where do we go? What do we do?
1: And when you look at the farm, it's kind of like, as we've said, it's mostly open. So there's really – they can bed along the creek, but a majority of the time they don't. The, t- the place that they spend the most time bedding is a cedar, overgrown cedar woodlot, basically, and it's not very big. It's, I don't know, less than 40 acres, I would yeah, say. yeah. And that's uh, on this landowner's property. And then that continues on to the neighboring property, which has, I'm sure, some deer go up in there in bed as well. And with all that, all the changing going on, that is the consistency. Deer bed on the south part of the property, deer bed in that cedar lot.
0: And it doesn't matter early season, middle of season, late season. That is where they go.
1: And it's not because it's the the preferred habitat for bedding. It's, it's just that way because that the is the only habitat <laughs> for bedding in the area, and and it's not necessarily the habitat. It's the fact that there's security in there. Correct. Since Correct. it's overgrown cedars, you don't want to walk in there. No. And so well, that's the, just the where the deer feel safe.
0: Because last year, the 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 farmer put cows through a lot of the crop fields, and that changed things, and that limited the amount of. Um, cover in those drainage ditches and stuff that the deer did have to bed in if they selected there so last year it was a extreme push an extreme emphasis on the the 40 acre let's just call it 40 acre cedar um woodlot and, and this year cows haven't been introduced like your brother the other day he saw a doe bed down on the edge of the crop field in one of those ditches um but if the cows get in there they're you know like last year we're going to anticipate even more bedding over there, but we know for sure that is primary UNO source for bedding cover throughout this large farm, honestly. Yeah. I mean, very
1: large farm, multiple hundred acres, couple, it's and, an epicenter. It, this kind of all gets, this is why hunting and don't get me wrong. I love hunting new areas, but I love learning new areas as well. And this is a property that we've, we've been learning. Uh, we've only hunted it a couple of seasons and, it's always, of course, adapting to the changing of the of the farming practices, but it's also just adapting to what what the deer are doing. And um, I feel like in in the other day we were walking around and we've been moving cameras all over this farm, and it's like deer always at nighttime, deer always at night here. Oh, pull another card. Oh, ninety five percent of the time it's at night. The only time it's daylight is when we had a massive cold front. Okay, that's really not a good judgment on that. Okay. Clearly, we're not close. We have 90% of nighttime pictures. We're not close to the bedding area.
0: There's an inventory. There's an excitement because you see good stuff show up on camera, but is it huntable in those locations? No, not really. you just be kind of wasting your time.
1: Yeah, and, I, and so as we started really understanding that, okay, deer are still nocturnal here. Move it a little closer to that bedding area. We might get a little bit more daylight picture, not much. Okay, st- we're still a ways from the bedding area. And then when we started putting cameras right up close to that bedding area, it's like, okay, this is when we're getting the morning videos and the afternoon videos and our pictures. And clearly, deer on their feet during daylight around this. And as you would note, as you would guess, it's getting closer and closer to that bedding
0: area. Well, just we. we... Honestly, I thought about it most, mostly in the tree because the, the stand that we hunted the, that one morning, um, within shooting distance or within spitting distance, really, there was a wheat field that had just been planted, and wheat was coming up. There was an alfalfa field that had just been cut, but was deer were, were, were hitting that a week prior. And yeah. there's standing soybeans 50 yards away across the creek. But this, this creek system has a little bit of a woodlot that funnels deer basically to what we know now the wheat the alfalfa and cut soybeans or or soybeans standing soybeans excuse me and basically there's those three options so we know now okay we've had a really good frost they just cut the alfalfa they're not likely going to be taking this trail as much so do we need to move the stand up? Well, if we move it up, we have a little bit better of an idea if we can get into uh, the area or at least see where deer are entering that that cedar block um, from the standing soybeans because we saw some deer in there that morning. But then we're actually in better position to cut deer off um, going to the wheat. But mm-hmm. that stand that that place, what we saw, really it's it's only one option. It's either you hang here or you just leave it where it's at. Um, and it's a triple walnut tree.
1: And every time you're Whenever you have deer on a very irregular pattern and you, the further away from regular you get, you drift into the irregular. So we can the, stay the in the same tree and we'll see deer, but the chance of them walking within range is very slim. I mean, but the closer we move to that bedding area, the more likely we're going to get the majority of the deer herd to move by.
0: It's a probability game. Yep. We we want to be closer to their more consistent activity but not alarm them, though, either, that we're there. And that's what moving this stand um, is going to do for us. We've got that creek bed that we can walk up and get to – basically, it's a, it's an intersection of a lot of different habitat types. That corner of the 40-acre cedar block is there. There's a pasture. Um, there's a couple cross fences. And, and when the landowner actually um, – I guess when he bought the property, he went and around the 40 acre section, dozed out a line, put a fence and there's dozer decks that are creating additional, um, bottlenecks. Yeah. Bottlenecks. There we go. Bottlenecks in that area that deer are basically forced to walk through there. Um, and it's, and it's going to be an incredible set. We haven't been able to get there yet. Um, but now we've just, we've realized that getting in there tighter cause, it, we're we're putting too many eggs in a basket of food sources when the consistency is is the bedding on this property, mm-hmm. um, and that might be the same for for you on a, on a property. You might be in cropland, and you're frustrated because you never know when the farmers go in there. Um, you show up one day and the crops are just gone, and you're like, "Well, last week I was hunting here and 40 deer piled into this place, and then you sit there that night and five come out and and." you don't spill grain and, and you just have to anticipate it and know that okay this is going to change what's my next move yeah and it could be totally different and we'll go into another
1: example of of the consistency and inconsistency of, of the prairie hollow property and right now what's inconsistent is where they're betting. what is consistent is what the preferred food source is
0: correct which is just completely opposite
1: yeah and so Unfortunately, I mean if if I had to pick, I think I would probably say I would rather have a consistent bedding area mm-hmm. than a feeding area because at least with the consistent bedding area, I know where the deer are during the day, so I can get in tight in the afternoon to try and catch them as they leave or I can get in tight in the morning to catch them when they're coming back. But with this as you and I have been fighting with this Prairie Hollow property and hunting the cornfield is, I don't know. We can set up on one end and they come out on the south end. I can mm-hmm. set up on the south end; they come out on the north end, or we can sit there and they don't come in. And we realize, and we check cameras and realize, oh, they're here at night. We don't know how far away they're betting, or we don't know how close they're betting. Yeah, we can't dive into the woods a hundred yards on the north end of the cornfield and say, okay, they're going to come by tonight because. That's where they could be bedded.
0: Well, that's where they could be bedded, and the terrain just doesn't allow. It doesn't allow for that uh, no. a successful hunt um, in that in that area. But it, it just it goes back to finding the consistency out of what you know. All the information that's laid out in front of you. Find Whether the it be consistency. food, yes.
1: cover, security, or water.
0: Bottlenecks could be the consistent thing. Yes. The, the way the property may lay out, and that's why we always say, you know every property is so unique. It's it's so incredibly unique to um, its features and the way that deer use them. And that's no different from either the two properties, the Prairie Hollow or the Lebanon Farm. Each are so unique. Um, and some of them doesn't matter the food source. Deer will walk through that bottleneck. It's just a matter of it. If we talk about small properties, 15, 20 acres. Some of those properties can be dynamite hunting because it is the great bottleneck between. Other properties, and you are yep. just in it year in year out,
1: for sure. So, I think of another the constant change, and we touched on it a little bit with Lebanon property. But how many of our listeners listen, or <laughs> how many of our listeners are hunting around a working cattle farm? I think one of the most common things is, yeah, I can't really do much. I am hunting on my uncle's cattle farm, okay. And you think about how much they move those cows around and the cows are just constantly bouncing around through the property. It's a constant change. That's something else that just goes on with everybody hunting on different properties is you could be set up great. uh, I'll go back to my childhood and all the scouting my brother and I did during the early, early part of season or even late summer before season opened up. And we had located several huge white oak trees that were loaded with acorns and we're like, this might be it. This might be where they're at. So we start getting ready to hunt it. Acorns start falling. Guess what happens, Matt? Cows, cows moved, figured it yeah. out, yep. and they moved in, and that they stayed there around those oak trees until they all all the acorns had fallen, and there was no more to eat.
0: Like I, I grew up hunting cattle farms as well, and and you know it's just part of the part of the deal. But there's there's and I like cows. I do. I know, you know, it's been a great blessing to my family, your family as well, having that additional income and growing up on a farm and everything. But it can be really aggravating when you're sitting in a stand and you start hearing leaves crunching and then you see this big black body moving through through the timber and you're like, what are you doing here?
1: Here's how I feel about cows in very simple terms. When they're not managed correctly, in my opinion, I love them for the fact that I like to eat them. Right, and that's it. Outside of that, I hate them What's because for dinner? beef. They are constantly messing up the hunt. Mm-hmm. They're moving in. They're bump. They're just around you. Or, ha! Huh, I'll just use the example of the other night of yesterday when we were moving a redneck soft side blind oh, from our yeah. turkey spot. Yeah, and I noticed driving by, and I'm like, that that cover looks a little weird.
0: Blind window looks a little funky on that. Thing.
1: Yeah. And what we've noticed was, if you know anything about the redneck soft-sided blinds, is um, they had the vertical windows and horizontal windows. Well, the vertical window looked a lot longer than it should. We walked over there, and the calves had been using it, I guess, as a little playhouse.
0: Yeah. And they
1: had been... Like the little tykes thing.
0: Yeah. You know, with the red roof. Little toy
1: house, and they were playing around in it, and it was so dusty from nothing growing inside and the cows had just trampled it so it was just oh it. Uh, it was terrible i've never been well i have been i was so mad thinking about those little calves enjoying that and ripping it up and just being a pain in it and it's just a constant fight another story is <laughs> we had the redneck bale blind out um that looks like a hay bale but a lot of coconut material in it
0: coconut matting and stuff
1: Wouldn't you know it, the cows thought it looked like a hay bale so much so that they proceeded to eat the cover off of it. Mm -hmm. And that's just a constant battle with cows. Now, when I say manage correctly, if you've done a lot of rotation and and you have small, basically you're doing high-intensity rotational grazing and you're moving the cows around, you know where the cows are. And when cows are interacting with the landowner that much, they're usually a lot calmer. They're not wild. They don't Um,
0: spook and run across the field kicking up their heels kicking and, and snorting gosh, and
1: stomping. And, and those are the cows I can't stand. Yeah. Those are the cows I like to eat. Um, but if they're a, if they're managed correctly, they are a great tool and are huge influence on the property. And that's yeah. what we're working towards. That's what we advise for a lot of our, our clients who, who want
0: to have both cows and, and again, some of it's a necessity. Some of it, you know, that additional income, whether it be them renting out the the portion of the property, um, for income or it's their cattle themselves. You've you've got to find the win win for for both objectives having yep. cattle and hunting.
1: I just think of like the Flint Hills. Flint Hills are oh. everybody in Missouri talks about the Flint Hills and how they love to send cows out there Which to is fatten Kansas. Them up. Kansas, um, that's because they have a lot of native warm season grasses and forbs. So during the summer months when fescue isn't as productive, like and that's what a majority of the pastures are around here, they can send their cows out to the Flint Hills to fatten up on native grasses and forbs. And then those cows, once once this time of year hits and the native grasses and forbs aren't growing as much anymore, they pull the cows or they take them to the slaughterhouse and it's over. Um, and then it's just those acres are left for the wildlife. Mm-hmm. And I and I love that. Yeah. Um. And it, and the one thing that you hear us talking when we're talking about this cattle and how it relates in the podcast today is, we like the cows when there's a consistency about them when they are managed with consistency and they're rotated around in a very consistent basis to where we know where they're at. They know where they're at. um, And that they know where they're supposed to be. So they're not getting out and eating food plots and knocking blinds over and all the stuff that cows do.
0: Well, you know, there's been a couple farms that we've worked on and and suggested, Hey, you know, if you do this rotation based on this paddock size, you're not going to have cattle on this ground on this paddock for another thirty days, or or forty days in some cases. It you know it all is all varies on the um, herd size and the, and the amount of acres you have. But that way you know, okay, I might have enough time to be able to to um, plant this in a winter annual, add wheat, and the cattle not be on there. It grow enough for deer to start hitting it, hammering it, and hunting it. You know, get that consistency, and then when the cattle cows are back in there. You've hopefully The wheat's been successful. tall enough to where and, and they it actually it can
1: use a tool. The cows as a tool to help the the wheat produce more forage. Yeah, and they bite one stem and it grows back as five stems, and and uh, that's just a fantastic tool to to use cattle and wildlife together.
0: Yeah. So let let's talk about this fall and the and more specifically the family farm prairie hollow property the food plot situation. And, and, and
1: why it's changed?
0: Why? Exactly. Last year, as you said, there was a lot of mature bucks, a lot of deer, very consistent patterns on the family farm, um, showing up on camera and honey observations. You tagged great buck in October because of some patterns that we noticed. But that's not the same this year. No. It's very different. Um, and, and the biggest thing that we can point a finger at and say, well, this has changed as the food plots,
1: mm-hmm. and I mean food sources because sure. there was a lot of white oak acorns around the farm, More and so. there's not hardly any this year. Yep. What few we did have are gone, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and but the food plots being target number one with that is, you know, last year we had we had great food plots everywhere, and. Then we go into this August, and we get a lot of rain early, and then it turned dry, and we didn't have a rain over half inch from the first week of August all the way till the second week of October, I believe. And when you go that long, I mean, I mean that's, that that's that's that is the period. growing period for the fall food plots. And, and, and it and was dry with no rain.
0: It's very tough, even, even if you had had gone ahead or whatever, planted... You know drilled at that time we broadcast and laid over summer cover crop um, but drilling at that time of the year too would have limited a, a resource too because it still takes rain for that plant to grow and then if it had just grown a little bit the deer would have hammered it and and basically this just goes further put emphasis on the fact of food plots supplement yeah. Your native forage and the habitat that you manage intensely, because you might you what's what is always going to change is the weather. We know that it changes day to day, hour to hour, and each year you can't say when that fall rain or when I'm planting my fall food plots. Regardless, you know you don't know when that rain is going to happen or if it's going to happen during that growing period at all, and that's why the emphasis has to be on the habitat because it grows throughout the entire year well it grows you know from growing season spring all the way through summer and produces this forage that they can have and and use during the fall but if you're planting just during that august september time frame and no rain it's not going to work out the best and that's just the boat that southern missouri or in other parts i know montana was super dry too there's other parts across the um, country that are just really dry at this time of year Tennessee and Kentucky were not. Yeah, part major parts of them. Anyway, and so now it's just like, okay, now we know that this has changed. How how do we hunt? What is the consistency? Because when we go back and look at historical data on trail cameras, well, they're not going to be the same. You know, we can't use that information to say that this buck is probably going to show up at this time time frame um, on this portion of the farm, because really, there's not a food source there right now. Or a great food source, not an attractive. There is elsewhere, which is what we talked about earlier—that big cornfield. Um, so that is that is something again that changes year to year, and uh, affects you in your hunting. Yeah, and the only
1: thing we could do to make it consistent is by <laughs> investing in irrigation, <laughs>
0: <laughs> which would be uh, not ideal.
1: Yes, so. Um, but if you have a one food plot, you could do that, I guess, if you wanted to. But mm-hmm. we don't usually talk about that a lot because it's so much, so many man hours to get that going. But um, and that's that's where you look at the Lebanon property. Okay, here's the consistency. Look at the Prairie Hollow Family Farms, and oh, guess what? The only consistency when you look at the cameras, you know, we had Good Buck Wheeler, that big eight pointer, and he was consistent around this one portion of the farm. Well, all of a sudden now he hadn't been in Cameron in two weeks. Mm-hmm. What's changed? Oh, what few white oak acorns were in that area are gone, most likely. Okay, we're
0: spoiled by this time.
1: Yeah, and so let's look around and see what other consistent what what's consistent. The only consistency is most of the bucks that we're hunting are around the corn.
0: Bingo, and and in relation, let's just say from the area of burger place to the corn. How far is that? Or, or, or the, the very northern portion, um, northeastern portion of the farm where that buck was at early season. Half a mile, three quarters of a mile maybe. I don't know. Right. Something like that. So this is a pretty considerable distance that the deer's traveling, but but, he, but there's no option.
1: that, And there's not really... I mean, Wheeler hasn't showed up at the corn yet, but I would not be surprised if he if he did. I guarantee you. Because he will. His running buddy all summer long when they were in bachelor group was that tall right eight mm-hmm. pointer Maybe which we saw a, and we saw him a couple hunts. Um he's been on camera a lot and all of a sudden boom, he showed up on the cornfield mm-hmm. and he's been there ever since he showed up. So it's like okay, it feels like there's been a migration of deer. It's like the caribou of Canada and Alaska but ours are white tails, and they're <sighs> migrating to the cornfield.
0: Yeah, um, and and here's another change though too, in relation to the property, um, and the cornfield is that now this year there's an additional cornfield on the property at the very acres. S- very yep. southern end. I was talking about the other one. Oh on the yeah, the very southern end. The other yeah. it's a 19 acre cornfield. <laughs> three additional. Yeah, three additional ones, and one that two acre. Honestly, haven't really been tapped into. Mm-mm. We'll get there though um so there's the north cornfield which has been there consistently for for 20 acres how many years three four years four, four years four years so it is a it is a food source that has been consistent at this time of the year for multiple years a cover crop has always been come back and planted and there's corn there on the ground um it's it was picked this year um picked so was, last year too Picked last year yep so for our benefit and the old equipment there's a lot of spilled grain um and that is feeding. come on
1: now we got to give them more details <laughs> of that when you think about corn harvest wherever doesn't matter you think of a huge combine big old john deere case tractor 20 foot combine head or whatever it ain't, um, it ain't i don't even know how many rows are they're picking but a lot and you think about that, and you're like, wow, okay, yeah, they're doing a corn harvest. No, not what, not the way we hillbillies and Prairie Hollow do it. You can't even get a combine on those fields. You
0: can't get a down-the-road, period.
1: So we have to resort to, not we, but the farmer that leases it, has to resort to a two-row picker.
0: Mm-hmm. And, I, and From when? One I don't even 60s, know. 60s, 70s, maybe?
1: In, probably, yeah. Something like that. Yeah, it's so technolo- uh, one of those old galvanized... changed a little bit, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And he picks it and he puts it in that uh, grain cart, that grain cart, and then he takes it over and throws it on his elevator and hauls it into the back of the old truck, and yep. that's how they do it. And
0: and it's the, fine by us.
1: Yeah, I, I, you think of um, like the the quail and pheasant preserves in South Dakota and how they try to use older combines because they mm-hmm. want to have more spilled grain. That's how it is for us. Is if he if he took if he had modern combine, there wouldn't be hardly any spilled grain.
0: Or wouldn't, it would not have the impact that it does Mm-mm. in this area. We'd
1: be relying on the cover crop rather For sure. than, For than sure. the spilled grain. But right now there's spilled grain everywhere and deer are loving it.
0: Loving it. And so in the past couple of years, this this northern cornfield has been there. And, and deer know about it. Obviously deer know about the one on the southern end, what, another half mile away? Um, but If that, yeah. But that field is now doing its job in pulling... A lot of deer from around the area, but
1: pulling deer it, from the south it, the, side exactly, that haven't ever came side, to the other cornfield.
0: Correct, that have never been influenced by the other cornfield that is doing its job. And 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 because if we look at it, and we say, okay, our area was severely impacted by um, this this lack of rain, this drought during the fall. If our plots didn't make it, nobody's plots made it in the area, and because of that these cornfields are incredible magnets right now um and again like like you said that southern end is pulling i think of like an arm just reaching out way over some hills and valleys and just saying okay come on come this way come this yep. way and then some same from the north come on come this way and
1: when we say pull we'll just try to paint this picture for you when we ran cameras all summer long like
0: large mouth you got them on the hook and you're just drilling them in yeah <laughs> that's
1: what i'm doing is when you and what we did was we ran cards or ran cameras all summer long throughout the property and everywhere on the property we had a couple of bucks we're like, Oh, those are good looking deer. Oh, okay, he's a good up and comer. Whoa, oh, look at this deer. He's only probably two and a half, but man, if he makes it, he is gonna be somebody one day. Yeah. Every single deer, it didn't matter if it was around the corn or way up in the middle of the timber, every single one of those deer that caught our eye is now around has been to the cornfield and then two additional bucks that we didn't even monitor all summer that are shooters. Yeah. So it's just like everything in the neighborhood is is now congregating to that cornfield.
0: Well, yeah, e- either the the south or the north and really it's it's the north though. That that, that is the mm-hmm. definite I I think we're going to see a, a a change a little bit um yep. later in the season when more food sources do become less and less um attractive. That's why I'm hoping that wheat grows fast. Yeah, yeah. I mean <sighs> Muzzleloader season. I'm just anticipating that time frame, that Christmas time. If we get some cold weather, it is going to be unbelievable. Yeah, on either one of those sets. That's on, why on all
1: of our redneck blinds are getting moved to those cornfields. Oh yeah, for because sure. Because we know that's that's going to be the key. Yep. If we're already this early into the fall, or this early in hunt season, and deer are already on limited food sources and and finding the the one. That is there and not chasing acorns that we know that's just going to get better and better as the season goes on
0: yeah exactly
1: especially since we cover cropped it in wheat and as that starts to grow so um it's all just that whole property is all the consistency is the food um but picking the right trail has been very inconsistent for
0: us and, and we have a great feeling of where the majority of the deer bedding in relation to this cornfield but like we mentioned earlier for a hunter to be successful and for us to be smart knowing it's only late October, it would be foolish for us to go in and try and hunt those areas. Yeah. Uh, it, it's, it's t- It's better for us. Like we've talked about in the past, it's better for us to leave it alone, know that it's safe and let the deer work to you. Um, that, that's going to be the most consistent hunting you're going to have. Um, and, and we, I know we talked about it earlier. We talked about our hunting strategy kind of throughout the fall on a couple different podcasts. Um, we're really not huge fans of hunting large destination food plots. I, I hate it. Because you I, sit there and you look, oh, there's, there's three down there. Came out 300 yards away. Oh, there's two. I love it from the fact that away. I love
1: watching animals. <sighs> it's I awesome. Mean, last Especially night we saw 14 deer. Uh, a lot of tw- turkeys. 20 turkeys. Coons. Six Coons. A coyote. <laughs> yeah, a coyote. Um it's just you, we see a lot, but did anything come in range? No. 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 Um we hunted it or I hunted it. And you were hunting with Seth 3 nights ago and we saw or I saw like 14 again. Um no bucks, all does and fawns and and coons and turkeys. And then the night before that, we hunted it and we saw 17 and actually we had a hit lister come out at 57 yards. Mm-hmm. Um and that's just a very iffy shot. He wouldn't really stop. He's quartering away. I didn't feel comfortable with it, so we let him walk. And that was just that was the first night we'd hunted that cornfield, and it seems to be where that. I mean one one group was there was ten of them in one group, yeah. and that's how I kind of made the joke to you. Every deer in Prairie Hollow is down here, <laughs> yeah, because that's yeah. how it kind of that's how it used to feel, right? And especially now that goes into when you're in you're in an area where food is very limited, especially during late winter. Like, I think of the timber country, there's not much food, especially closed canopy timber forest. There's not a whole lot of food in late winter. So deer are almost, they're scavenging, trying to find anything. And I think of a few instances where the farmer up the road decided to plant wheat in December, wheat in November, and all of a sudden it starts getting a little green tint to it in <sniffs> December and, and you drive by and there's 30 deer out there and you're like, oh my goodness, there's every deer in Prairie Hollow is out there. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what, that's why habitat improvement is so important is because you don't want that. You don't want your deer turned into scavengers looking for food. You want to try and provide them everything they need to survive the year.
0: Within your property boundaries. Yeah. And that That's the kicker. And and lucky, luckily for... You know, for your family farm situation, is even though your family farm is 300 acres, the lease backs right up to it, so you know that the deer are traveling safely to get to this large property. But they're they're going off your your yeah. property, um, still going to a safe refuge. So it's not not saying that you have to have this incredibly huge amount of acreage to keep deer, but you still have to manage and have the necessary. Food sources, um, security cover—all these things within your property boundary—if you want to keep deer, because you know that their go- their their necessities are going to overtake, um, and they're going to they're going to change if they have to. And
1: that may be they're going to your neighbor who likes to shoot deer all the time.
0: <laughs> yeah, you never know.
1: And never so know. that's why it's important. And it doesn't have to be a huge crop field, like Matt no, said. It doesn't, it have, doesn't to have to be twenty food plots it just have we just have to provide the habitat improvement to where we can. And and a lot of times that could be a timber harvest, getting a lot of early successional young forest um growing in your mm-hmm. neck of the woods to where we can offset uh, think about an ideal world we can we can offset a lot of the browse pressure and relieve the food plots where that's just a supplement. So when times do get tough, they can depend on that food plot.
0: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And you know, we kind of talked about it earlier. You know, how many deer are coming down to that cornfield? And what we've noticed is that okay, it is October 29th right now, and past couple of days we've hunted down there that area. We've seen doe groups. We've seen um, does and fawns together. Does and twins. Um, the occasional young buck coming in behind them. Um, and you know. It's not... We haven't seen the pushing, the nudging. No. We have not seen those family groups break up. Um, So we know that... And you
1: always see the young bucks first, nudging, chasing. And yesterday, I shot a doe um, with... She still had fawns with her, young deer with her. Um, And then a little bit later, here here came another doe with two fawns, and... A couple of young bucks, 50 yards behind them, just kind of trailing. They
0: they weren't even – They were just following. Yeah. I mean, like, but intently – but it was not – I would not say they were nudging. They were not It it was
1: still – to me, everything said, we're still not there yet. No. We're still at that phrase where the young bucks aren't even full-fledged chasing and grunting. Right. When I start seeing that, when I start seeing young bucks doing it, and then I start seeing a -a three-and-a-half-year-old doing it, and I'm like, oh – Okay, now I'm starting to get ready for the big boys to really be doing it. Yeah. but it's always those young bucks first.
0: And, and it was, as we went back and talked about it later, we had you know the the doe and two fawns coming up um, through the timber, and then there was two young bucks right behind them. Um, I mean, directly behind them, just kind of visually trailing them. And then what what this? I think two and, the and observation. A half. Yeah, yeah, it was definitely a two and a half year old. Um, comes with that group but this buck the two and a half year old was basically to the west and we kind of had like a southeastish wind at that point um and he was to the west of the doe groups he was not following directly visually behind them but he was staying in relation to them scent checking as he was going through the timber not pushing not nudging but just being that much smarter i think over the years he's probably learned a little bit more um and stayed in in thicker cover he learned how to play the wind exactly
1: just like i've over the years i've gotten i know how to play the wind with you last night in the stand i didn't know how to play the wind with you i set down (laughs) wind
0: you did i was (laughs) was, was, was like where are you going with this
1: yeah you didn't know that yeah so we've talked all you you guys have have followed along for 44 minutes into this podcast and you've heard our stories, and we're talking about the inconsistencies and the consistencies and trying to plan our hunting strategies accordingly. But lo and behold, we're going to talk about habitat improvements now. Boom. How how can we take all this information and hunting strategy and turn this into habitat improvement? Right here it is for you. When we think about the inconsistencies, let's just use the Prairie Hallett property. The consistency is the cornfield, the food source.
0: And that's going to be there. That's gonna that continue that was to be planted in the spring. We we knew that was gonna happen.
1: But the inconsistency is where they're betting. So how can we make the betting consistent? Now if it's your own property, a property that you lease, that you can basically a property that you can do improvements on. You can run a chainsaw. What we can do now is strategically place these bedding areas. Let's try to break up this very monotonous type habitat where it's closed canopy everywhere. It's homogenous.
0: It's the same thing. There's no there would be no reason why deer wouldn't bed 100 yards off the field today or 400 the next day. No. What? Why would they change? I mean, why would they not change? It's the same thing, right?
1: So what we can do is improve and make bedding areas. But not just make bedding areas. We'll make bedding areas and strategically place them to where, okay, during the winter, here's a south-facing slope. This is where they're going to bed in the dead of winter.
0: And even even though we have made those bedding areas, and we'll we'll get into what we mean by making a bedding area, but we know that those are going to change too. Yeah. Like, even throughout the season, where are they going yeah, to select? Exactly. Bed? That's a key word. Not yes. that they're going to change. Right, We're not going like to just transplant a bedding area around the farm.
1: And they're not going to change from day to day. They're changing no. from season to season. Yeah. As far as season early temperatures, season. early season, mid-season, yes. late season, not deer season, turkey right. season. Right, right. So they will change. So if we strategically place... These small, and we we say bedding or what we're really going to do is two to three acre, maybe five acre, clear cut, treat stumps, get early successional, make it thick and nasty, make it a great edge, but also put it in a place that we can't hunt. We talked about this five podcasts ago, putting them in a place where we can't hunt. Actually, deer feel safer because that's where the swirly winds are, and we're going to put them there with certain winds, so they'll have it for early season, there'll be another one for late season, and that we know, okay, that's where they're bedding, and this is where they're coming. Now how can I get in between those two things, bedding and feeding?
0: And and look, for instance, we know this cornfield is just – deer piling into it we don't know exactly how far off the field they're bedding but we wouldn't ever go and say okay i'm gonna go in a hundred yards or 80 yards off this field edge and start cutting to make one of these two three acre clear cuts we don't want that because there's no way for us to be able to get in between that safely comfortably and hunt deer and transition i don't want to put a lot of pressure on the bedding areas um, and I don't I want to put to. a
1: lot of pressure on the feeding area.
0: Exactly. I want to be in between where deer pass by. So when I get there, they're not there. They're going to come by. And when I leave, they've already gone by.
1: And you know what you know what hurts me is climbing down at the end of a hunt on the edge of a field. Yes. That just hurts <laughs> me. Yeah. Or we sit there till eight thirty and my wife's blowing up my phone, go, Where are you? Oh, I'm sitting in the in, tree in, in because the tree. there's deer close and I don't want to you want to talk about sounding crazy. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> so we don't have to it, explain ourselves anymore. That, that's where it's just like, ugh. So I would rather find a spot, transition area, to where we can get in between the two. That's ideal. Those are the setups to where you may not get to sit on the field and see it for you may, depending on the, f- the vision, um, but you're not going to be able to sit there and see deer feeding and all that fun stuff. But you're going to be able to see deer going to and from and have no idea that you're even in their world.
0: And, and here's the thing. Right now, we have one consistent destination that we know deer are going to. And let, we can take it that Lebanon property. We know deer are going to that, that bedding area. We know at the Prairie Hollow property, deer are going to the, corn the cornfield. Field. But now, let's say, okay, I've got these bedding areas at the Prairie Hollow property that I've I've designed, or now I've gone and really planted um, some great food plots, had great success in Lebanon, now the consistency really happens. It really shines because that food plot isn't gonna really change throughout the fall too much. It's still gonna be a great um, resource and deer to come through there, but I've got two areas that are very consistent. So if I have two areas, uh, basically a start and a finish line, that are really consistent, then the transition area, the way, the path that deer are going to move from one consistent area to another is going to be consistent.
1: Especially if we put, like, we've got a great bedding, we've got a great destination, and we've got, we're using the terrain to where we know they're going through this saddle. We then offset that with a small... Kill plot area? Kill plot. Oh. Now we're getting somewhere. Now we're cooking with peanut oil, as yes. Phil Robertson said, because... We've we've used the terrain to where okay they're traveling through the saddle to get here.
0: It's a broader but, saddle, so I can plan a little bit area. The wind's going to work, but this kill pot's going to neck them down that much mm-hmm. more.
1: Because now, as we know, deer are very much br- foragers. They're browsers. They don't eat the same thing over and over and over. So if we can give them some greens before they go eat grains, bingo.
0: And and if you know. Everyone's observations are different. You say deer are foragers. Well, they don't eat the same thing. How can you say that they come out to the soybeans and just eat them, eat them, eat them, eat them? Yeah, but what do they do after they leave? What do they do on their way to that?
1: What do they do when they get to the edge of the field?
0: Yeah, they <laughs> eat the browse on the edge of the field. And, and I, don't,
1: don't don't try and tell me you don't have weeds in your food plots.
0: <laughs> yeah, look at I, I think
1: of some food plots whenever you have like pokeberry growing along, mm-hmm. along the edge or ragweed along the edge, and they're all browsed.
0: They're torched. And All it's like, tours.
1: yeah, exactly. Yeah. They're not eating the same
0: thing. Yep. So basically, and I, I, I go back again to the, let's, if, let's imagine. It, a, before
1: we do that, if they are eating the same thing, there's something huge. Again, you, there's, there's a too huge much problem. Emphasis,
0: too much emphasis on one thing. And again, diversity is king. Diversity is king in habitat. Diversity is king in a bedding area. And, and, and the bedding areas that you have, whether it's the north-facing slope, south-facing slope, in areas that have consistent winds, so on and so forth. Diversity is king. Anyhow, the start line, the finish line, if you can if you can manipulate a property or learn a property that has got a consistent start line and a start and a finish line, you can hunt very successfully. And that is what you look for. If you don't have that, then then we have the opportunity to do more habitat management and improve it so the deer are bigger, healthier. And the hunting is better. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, let's talk about public land, too. We can't forget about
1: those guys. And I have another and, story I want to talk about, too, though.
0: Okay, well, hit that story.
1: Let's go with that, and then we'll do public ground. Okay. When you think about Lebanon and, and anything, basically, that's, that's ever-changing, how do you, when we look at, when we talked about Lebanon and that it is a bedding area that's not changing, but it's cedars. What mm-hmm. happens to cedars over time? They grow up. Yep. And then the understory turns to nothing. Nothing. So then it becomes a very <laughs> it's not a very ideal bedding area. It's cold. Get into a cedar thicket and see how cold it is. How can we keep that consistent? Let's do some cutting.
0: Yeah. Let's do yeah. some
1: prescribed fire and get some native grasses growing in there too. Yep. And keep it at bay and keep it in this early secessional state. Yeah, a few cedars isn't bad. We've got cedar skeletons. We've got all kinds of other things growing up. We've got some plum thickets. We've got native grasses and forbs. We've got everything they need. But to keep it like that, we need to keep prescribed fire in there.
0: That's prescribed fire is just a maintenance tool. That's all it is.
1: It's just a. To me, it's a reset button. Boop. It's like okay, click, 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 click. Time goes on. Bink, reset, back. Click, 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 click. Every time you every time you send a fire through there, you just get to reset it back to that young stage.
0: Yeah, exactly. And that, that is a preference, um, that we know deer are going to be on to and, and definitely utilize it again, that cedar thicket. That's the consistency because cows, they don't go in there very often at all. If, if at all, no, I think, I think I've seen them in there one time, maybe. Mm -hmm. Um, so they know it's a consistent area to be able to bed. And it's, it's, it's thick, nothing else goes in there. It's and, safety, it's security.
1: And then let's go to the five acre clear clear cut. We can go in there, cut these trees, treat the stumps to where they don't stump sprout, and we let early secession, secession will take over. There's gonna be some saplings grow up. Sure. How do we keep those at bay from if we just let it go? It's gonna grow and grow and grow, and it's gonna go from you're gonna reach different saplings, early successional
0: stages. Then you're gonna to get to a young forest, and so on, and so forth.
1: Exactly. So we can keep that in check and keep that a preferred bedding area by sending prescribed fire through there
0: after we've treated those stumps with mm-hmm. the herbicide. Yes. I, that's one thing I think, uh, you know, can be misconstrued. You know, just because you go and cut trees, you have early succession no you've got a young forest but you have to maintain the early success you're going to have some early successional species come back mm-hmm. but it's be very temporary before yes. those get choked out
1: and i and i i even made this mistake is um oh yeah we'll just send fire through and kill the trees well how often i have seen it very rarely to where a fire actually kills a tree mm-hmm. now top killing and killing are two different things I've seen fire knock a lot of trees back to where only top kills it, and the stump sprouts start coming up. But when we say if we're talking kill kill, it has to kill the roots, and that hardly ever happens that's with an prescribed extreme, fire. Extreme if it's fire. if it's hot enough to do that, you don't. You be probably there. have other problems. You don't want to be there. Um, and so that's what we're talking about as far as putting herbicide on it because that actually kills the tree system and kills the root system rather than just top killing it because if you just top kill it you're gonna have to keep coming back year after year with or not year after year every two years with fire to knock it back but then if you get a couple years where it's not the conditions to kill that tree and it grows even taller then you can't carry a fire underneath it and that's when it gets away from you Mm mm-hmm so well, that's what I, thats what my story is. But what on public ground, it's always changing.
0: Yes, always changing.
1: And sometimes it changes, and you don't even know it, and you—and there's no reason for you to know it. But it could change because um, the, the, the one guy from the one guy from two down, two towns down, has been in there the last three days, and is, and staying out of that clear cut or staying out of that bedding area. He's walked right to the center of it and blew the deer out. So now they're at a different bedding area. Yeah, that's something that happens all the time it's happened to me and I know if you've hunted public ground long enough it's happened to you too it's
0: just a matter of time for you to run into an instance where I was seeing deer left and right in this place and got a great cold front going back out and it's dead what the heck happened Well, we know that deer are going to they're driven by fear we know that they're going to change their pattern if fear is, is fear is Influencing them, yeah, and it, they're not going to leave their home range core area, but they're going to find different places within those areas to bed, and that can drastically, especially bow hunting, drastically change you and your hunting efficiency. Yeah.
1: I think of there was a conservation area I love to hunt. One of these days, we're just going to pack up and go up and hunt it. Um, in northern pack up, moving out northern Missouri, and. The only consistency we could find was this little inholding that was 10 acres, but it was like kind of rough and gnarly and didn't really seem ideal. There wasn't great timber in it.
0: No one really in their right mind travels to public ground to hunt 10 acres. No. However, in this And it was right
1: next. There was a road. It was at the T in a road, so it was right next to—it had a road on two sides of it. About
0: off your rocker.
1: And it was like, why do I want to sit here and watch
0: cars go cars
1: by, go by and, and people walk, park? Mm-hmm. It's right next to a parking lot, too. Um, and people would just, you are know, like, why would we do this? Well, then we started kind of just putting things together. Okay, every time we walk back here, we jump deer out of this little spot. Um, when we drive out, there's deer along the road. Um, and it was kind of like, I wonder how many deer are hanging out in there. So one day we just took a little walk. And it was like, there's a lot of sign in here. Huh. And so the consistency of that public ground was the fact that there was 10 acres that nobody hunted.
0: There's and 10 acres that everyone avoided. Not necessarily avoided, but overlooked. 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 Went past. They traveled deeper into the property and deeper. They w- and there and was no food plots. Surpassed that area.
1: There was no food plots. There was no, no big oak groves. There was not really anything. I remember it had a lot of autumn olives around mm-hmm. the edge of it. Uh, it was kind of filled with other invasives. And it was like, there's nothing here that screams Deer great Haven. Yeah. And what was there that screamed Deer Haven was security.
0: And I think that right there is the telling story of, even though you, you're in a managed area that has other great habitat features in it, security trumps those. You have to have all those features together working to have... Deer consistently moving in areas that you basically are planning.
1: I think about it like this. I could have 100 acres of a food source of the best-looking brassicas and wheat and everything in the world, but let's just say it's just 100 acres. There's nothing adjoining. It's just a chunk of land. I don't have deer there. I can't have deer there. Mm -hmm. There's nothing to keep them surviving. But if I took 100 acres of just brush and thick, nasty stuff, I guarantee you, look at any city – and are not any city but most cities and there's a 10 acres of just brush and there's a pile of deer that live in there yeah and and that's the difference it takes the security for a deer to survive
0: for sure for sure it does and those are just instances we've seen this year and in the public hunting you know in past years of everything is going to change throughout a certain portion of the season and and it takes the, the right perspective to be able to identify things are changed. Things are different from season to season. And if I want to remain successful, if I want to be successful, I can't continue to hunt the way I'm hunting. Don't be afraid of change. Honestly, embrace it.
1: Embrace it, and then if you want to combat that. Embrace it
0: and capitalize on
1: it. Yes. No. Take the change that you know and, and change your property for the better and you're going to punch more tags because of it. If you can if you're sitting there going boy my property's always inconsistent, make it consistent. Do yes. some habitat work. Improve the habitat. Do prescribed fire. Make it more consistent than any of your buddies so you're the one punching tags rather than getting mad coming in on the office on Monday morning and your least favorite coworkers is always killing them.
0: Create a start and finish line. Yep. And you will have consistency. If you don't have those, then you're probably
1: you're hunting deer that are inconsistent.
0: I was That's gonna say it. a different phrase, but yeah.
1: Well, I just said it for you.
0: There we go. So, so, find it, embrace it, and capitalize on it.
1: Yep. Do work.
0: Do work. I think I was about wraps it up. We're right on time. Perfect. Right on. Well, time. Well, there I you like guys it.
1: go. That's this week's podcast. Um, everything has changed. Now we're going to do the habitat work and come back for that and and punch more tags because we know what to do now. Um, hopefully, you guys have learned something. It's always fun to do these podcasts, even if it is Sunday afternoon and our bellies are full from Sunday lunch. Um, but we are going to wrap this up as quickly as possible because it's time to get to the sand.
0: Matt, we'll see final you guys. thoughts? Hey, right. good luck! Send us pictures. Peace out! See you guys.
1: Big shout out to RTP Outdoors, makers of the Genesis No-Till Drill, the Goliath Crimper, and the Groundbreaker. Without their support, the Land and Legacy Podcast wouldn't be possible.
0: For all you food plotters out there, be sure to check out rtpoutdoors.com or check them out on Facebook. Thanks for listening to another episode of Land and Legacy's Hunting and Habitat Management Podcast. If you like what you hear, check us out at landandlegacy.tv. You can submit a viewer question right there, and we're answering on the podcast. Or find us on Facebook and Instagram.
1: Feels pretty good knowing that from the beginning of time, God has called us to be a caretaker, gamekeeper, a manager of the land. So with that being said, don't you think we should do it all for the love of the land and the glory to God? Big shout-out to RTP Outdoors, makers of the Genesis No-Till Drill, the Goliath Crimper, and the Groundbreaker.
0: Without their support, the Land and Legacy podcast wouldn't be possible. For all you food plotters out there, be sure to check out rtpoutdoors.com or check them out on Facebook.